A young man was walking through the supermarket and he just grabbed a little basket and he noticed after a couple of aisles that there was a much older lady that was following him through the whole supermarket filling her cart with food. He had his few items he'd gathered that morning and he'd made his way towards the checkout when she went ahead in front of him and uh, she loads her items on the belt, and as she's loading them, she turns around and says to the young man, pardon me, but my son just died, and you look just like him. And he says, ma'am, I am so sorry. Is there anything I could do for you as you mourn your loss? And she says, you know, I know it sounds unusual, but would you just wave and say goodbye, mother, as I leave? And he says, absolutely, I can do that. She finishes loading her groceries on the conveyor belt, and she gets them all bagged and into her cart, and she's leaving. He says, goodbye, mother. And uh, uh, right about that time, he sees the total for his two items is $128, and he looks at the cashier and says, what? And he says, your mom said that you would pay for her groceries. (laughs) You can't just trust anybody. This week alone, we've had a Zelensky claim that they still have the city of Bakhmut, and Putin congratulate his uh, mercenaries on overtaking that same city. And then we have Montana and Mississippi, who are both fighting legislatively and in the courts to establish what gender means. And then we have, uh, in the same news, we have a company trying to define uh, gender in another state, Florida. And it's almost like the only thing we can really be sure of is death and taxes. There are two hunters out in the woods, and one of them suddenly falls. And his friend is alarmed. He sees his, his friend Eyes glazed over, mouth hanging agape. He pulls his phone out, has service, calls 911 and says, my friend is dead, what do I do? And the lady on the other end says, calm down. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's silence on the line for a second, followed by a gunshot. And he says, what's next? (laughs) We can have more certainty besides death and taxes. We can still have certainty. But as Christians, we wrestle with the question, how do we know uh, what we can trust for our Christian answers? And, and we have a Christian solution to that. And that Christian solution is to say the Bible's true because I believe it's true and it says it's true. And if you take that to your neighbor, what they're going to say is you're using circular reason because our culture doesn't accept that we say the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. And I think that what we can find today is that Jesus, being the Savior, Lord, and King, not just of the world, not just of Israel, but of the cosmos, Jesus can establish the authority of the Scriptures with a snack. And I have no snacks for you, I'm sorry. But I promise not to say tacos like I did last week, so you won't think about tacos Point taken. So I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and if you're around verses like 3, 4-ish, you will see that David is on the run from Psycho Saul, king of Israel. He's on the run from a king 
has all the resources of a whole nation to go after this one guy that he's convinced David is somehow going to try to usurp his throne or to take it by force. Now, David is running from King Saul, so clearly not trying to take his throne. In David's running, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, in David's running, his first response is to seek the Lord, which we see him doing at Nod, and that's chapter 21. Uh, I don't have some slides for you guys, so I would invite you to open your scriptures. They may be tucked in the seats in front of you. I'll be between 1 Samuel chapter 21, Mark chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 12. It sounds so much. Oh my gosh, a seven-hour sermon. You can make it just fine. There's water around this hallway. But 1 Samuel chapter 21, Mark chapter 2, Matthew chapter 12. And I'll tell you those when I'm going there so that if you don't have them all found right now, it's okay. I'm just kind of reviewing David's situation. Chased by King Saul. Saul has selected men from his army to help him capture David. And David escapes to Nod where he goes to the priest Ahimelech and he inquires of the Lord, which you won't see in 21, but you'll see in 22 when he's cross-examined by Saul. Details for next time. But today, you're just looking at verses 3 and 4, where David is hungry. He is on the run from the king who has all the resources, which includes snacks, probably tacos. Said I wasn't going to do it. We're just going to lean into it. Tacos, tacos, tacos. Sorry about your luck. I hope you brought tacos. So David is hungry, probably like you are hungry right now, uh, because I talked about tacos. So David says, man, do you have anything we can eat? And the priest says, of course, we have the showbread. If you've still got the KJV, you've got shoe bread. Uh, We have the bread of the presence. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the what of life. I'm the bread of life. So David says, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. He gives him the bread. That is the snack under our examination today. And we see this snack. We see this snack used by Jesus to establish and to, I would say, pretty completely win an argument. But also, I think another important thing for us to note is that Jesus establishes the authority, the reliability, even the inspiration of the scriptures. And it's going to take some drawing out. And I had some feedback after first service, so I want to let you know I'm going to try to draw it out. And if your eyes glaze over and you're taking a nap, I'm just going to go longer and talk more. So keep up. You guys ready? All right. We're going to go on then to, uh, let's go to Mark chapter 2. Many of you will recall that Jesus recites this event where David, hungry, goes for the showbread, and Ahimelech gives it to him. We see that again in Mark chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 23. Now, I'm just reading 23 to 28. So if you're still looking, great time to find Matthew chapter 12. It's where we're going next. But I'm in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And they had a big deal about it. And he said to them, have you never read, pay very close attention to what Jesus is saying, 
Have you, he's speaking to the Pharisees, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, this is Jesus saying to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man. Say it with me, Georgetown. Not man for the... Okay, you guys are with me here. So the Son of Man is Lord even over or of the Sabbath. Now, I want you to flip over to Matthew 12 because Matthew gives us a more robust account. Mark is amazing for his brevity and his writing a little mystery like, will they find out that Jesus is the Christ? But Matthew is famous for something else. Now, even just in Mark chapter 2, just in Mark chapter 2, Jesus affirms the authority, maybe you could make the argument for the inspiration, but we'll get there for sure in Matthew, but he establishes the authority of the scriptures with a snack. Now, let's go into Matthew chapter 12. At that time, I'm starting... In verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and eat. But then the Pharisees saw it, and they said to him, again, stroking out, big deal, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not, again, have you, he's speaking to the Pharisees, not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, how he ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, again, is Lord of the Sabbath. So Matthew's testimony here of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and the disciples here watching and listening is just one on a list of a gajillion reasons why uh, I believe and probably you believe that Matthew was writing to a very specifically Jewish Hebrew Christian audience. He was, what, where's Jesus arguing from here? And that's what we're going to look at. Where is Jesus arguing? How is he forming the basis of his argument? I'm going to try to just go slow because people told me first service, this was just too much, too fast, so I'm slow. Now, they didn't get this joke. Are you going to be slow? A magician was working on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. So if you weren't hungry, now you're hungry and you want to go on a cruise. He was working on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. And uh, because the guests were new every week, he decided, I can just fall into a routine. And so this magician is doing his routine. And it so happens that the captain's parrot is watching the routine. And the captain's parrot then becomes wise to the routine. And so the captain's parrot begins saying, it's not the same hat. The flowers are under the table. They're all aces of spades. And he's like ruining the whole magician's entire routine. And the guests really don't love it, but it's okay because there's a shipwreck. And the only people left are the stinking parrot who ruins the fun for everybody 
and the magician. And they are a la Jack and Rose. They're floating on like the one last piece of wood. And after days, the parrot breaks the silence and says, what'd you do with the ship? I give up. (laughs) Okay, well, you guys are getting it. That's awesome. You guys are following. Jesus knew his audience. Jesus knew his audience, and he made the most compelling argument. He, he reasoned for the establishment and authority of scriptures from a snack, but he did it from their basis of truth. Jesus argued from the authority that they argued from. So just follow with me. I want to go through a few in chapter 12 of Matthew Verse 3, we'll start. Jesus affirms the authority of the former prophets. If we're just dividing the Old Testament like a Hebrew would divide it, then you would have the Torah, and then you would have the Nevi'im, and that just means the former prophets. I have no idea why they call it that. It's their language, and I think it means prophets. But we're just going to say prophets. And there were former and there were latter, and they just called it prophets. Jesus then, in verse 3... He is arguing from the former prophets, a habit we also see through the rest of the Gospels as Jesus makes arguments from Scripture. You'll remember his Sermon on the Mount. Moses said to you, but I say to you. So it's also important to see that not only does Jesus argue from the basis of truth that the Pharisees assert, but he also argues the way that a Pharisee would argue, the way that even a Hebrew or a Jewish religious person would argue. And that is very simple. It is from lesser to greater. Moses told you, I told you. Man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath for man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus uses their basis and he uses their form of argument. But Jesus redeems all of this. Jesus redeems all of that in addition to using it. So it's like he agrees and then he elevates. So let's, let's just keep observing how Jesus does this. He affirms the authority of the law, and this is verse 4, referencing the laws that say that the showbread is reserved for the who. Who is it, George? Who's the showbread allowed to be eaten by, according to Leviticus and Numbers? Only the fancy clothes, the priests. You guys are rock stars. So Jesus then in verse 5, he reaffirms the authority of the law. Now, uh, Georgetown Christian students are going through, they're going through a certain segment of the Old Testament. And for any of those students who can name, can name what would you commonly refer to as the first five books of the Old Testament? Students, go. Oh, big pressure. Okay, we're going to say it rhymes with Barah. Rhymes with Borah, so it might be the, oh, another hint just dropped. Did you guys hear that? Somebody phoned a friend. (laughs) So it starts with a, and it rhymes with Borah. No students, what I'm convinced is no students want to blow pop today. (laughs) Where is it? Oh gosh, that, I'm, somebody's going to die if I throw this. So can I just, can I throw it like over there? They're over, like right over there. I just don't want to kill anybody. Okay, 
All right, so one more, don't die. Okay, I'm sure you probably know Torah. Okay, <laughs> Matthew, please don't believe that this is representative of their ability to understand or your ability to teach. It is probably their willingness to just listen and get off a screen, probably, if I had to guess. Okay, so, whew, God help me. Torah, students, say it with me. Torah. So, this is where Jesus is arguing from because this is where the Pharisees were arguing from. But remember, Jesus not only uses their source material, but also joins in their rhetoric, their form of argument. Big word just means the way they argue for something. And if you're a parent, you know your children's rhetoric. But mom, all my what? All my friends are going to, okay, that's their rhetoric. So Jesus also understands their rhetoric, and that, that's amazing that he uses it with them. He immediately says, have you not read? He agrees the source material is authoritative. So he both uh, establishes and affirms and agrees that this material called the Torah, even the Nevi'im, what we're going to call the Old Testament, it's not because it's not complete, but I won't get technical this morning like I just did. Just think about tacos for a second. So what he does is he says, yes, I affirm that this is authoritative. And then he argues from that. And he argues that he himself is over. He himself is the Lord. He himself is the king of that writing, which Pharisees, of course, don't really love. Now, the Pharisees' way of, of reasoning through the scriptures, so we've already said rhetoric, and I'm going to say more big words, but we're going to define them. But I'm going to say one more big word. I'm going to say hermeneutic, but we've all said that word before. And it means one's way of seeing the scriptures. One's way of reading the scripture and understanding what God might want from us. So Jesus adapts in that he accepts from them. Think about how this applies to us in our culture. He accepts from them the basis from truth the basis from which we will argue. He even joins them in their rhetoric, but he steps entirely outside of the way they see it. And they use scripture, they use the law, they use the law as a weapon against the hurting and the helpless. And Jesus sees it from a totally different perspective. Jesus sees the scripture as a way by which we bring mercy and life and hope. And so his entire hermeneutic is shifted from theirs. So then how might that apply to us as we engage our culture, as we engage neighbors who want to know what is the basis for truth? How do I understand the world in which I live? Answer the biggest questions of life. Why am I here? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? Our neighbors have the same questions people have had forever. Will we approach those on their basis of truth? Will we approach those in the same form of argument that they're comfortable with? And will we approach it with the same way of viewing truth and reality? And in other words, the same hermeneutic, the same interpretational lens, will we see it all the same way? Or will we see it all and apply, like Jesus did, a way of understanding 
that brings the scriptures to life and proclaims hope in a Lord that redeems our brokenness for his glory and for the good of us and our neighbors. So a couple of arguments I want us to review before I move forward to probably what is the next greatest joke you'll hear today. Uh, So those are really quickly just a couple. Um, When the Pharisees use the word of God as a weapon, he then is using it to show that there's mercy and saying, I am Lord, number one. Number two, his arguments interpret scriptures just like they interpret the same scriptures, but not the same way. So number two is his hermeneutic has shifted. He interprets them mercifully. Easy for me to say. And number three... In his arguments, he shows that he's greater than the Sabbath. He establishes by the scriptures that the scriptures are about him. They do point to him, but he he is Lord over them because we don't worship a Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. We have a Holy Scripture that points to, it tells us about, that illumines the truth we may understand about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. A man and his wife are traveling through the United States, and they're approaching Florida. They're south of Orlando, and there begins to be a disagreement in the car about how you pronounce a certain name of a certain city that's spelled K-I-S-S-A-M-M-E-E. And the wife says, I think it's Kissimmee, and the husband says, I think it's Kissimmee, and maybe it's Kissimmee, and so the argument just goes on until he finally says, you know what, it's lunchtime, let's just stop, and we'll go in here, and we'll eat, and the husband's thinking, I've got her, because I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to ask, and so they walk up to the counter, and the clerk says, hello, what can I get you, and he says, what we really need is for you to tell us where we are, but say it slowly so that my wife can hear, and she says, Burger King. (laughs) That was a quiet car right after that. (laughs) Closely reading this text, we discover Jesus' emphasis on mercy. We can can see very clearly in Mark 2 and Matthew 12 and Luke 6, you can see very clearly that Jesus whips them with their their own law, their own scriptures, because it's the word that's about him that he revealed to men who wrote it. So, He's, of course, adept at understanding it, but he applies it in a way that is merciful while the Pharisees weaponize. Verse 7 is our connect back to the Old Testament, and some of you are, are wondering now, if I'm wandering, like wandering around, and you're curious if this ends in a way that is meaningful, and I assure you that it does because Jesus, as he has reasoned from lesser to greater, he goes one step farther. And this is why I think one of a billion reasons Matthew is very Hebrew or Jewish in his writing and his thought. Matthew goes on to say, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, I think this is where Jesus points back to the Pharisees and establishes not just the way in which we should view and interpret scriptures mercifully, but also for us now, we can reason with our neighbors, and and this is where this is a long, rather complex 
argument that I think is worth understanding, so just trace it with me if you would. Jesus has established, he's agreed with men that are decidedly Jewish. They don't believe Jesus is the Christ. They're very Jewish. He's not the Messiah. Now, the Messiah, you and I agree, he is the Messiah. He is the founder of the Christian religion by his death and resurrection. We acknowledge him as the Son of God, come man in the flesh, and he is now our Savior, risen Lord, sitting at the right hand of God, going through the heavenly tabernacle, all of that stuff. We believe that Jesus and the Christian understanding of the Jewish scriptures along with the New Testament together. Now, how insane is this? Are you still with me, Georgetown? Are you still following me? Because we're going to take the Old Testament, which are which scriptures? They're very Hebrew, Jewish. And then we've got the New Testament, an entirely different, according to the Jewish lot, an entirely different religion who's just borrowed and maligned our holy scriptures. Now, Jesus is going to marry these two together And here is where we can rest with our culture, with our neighbor. You're thinking, man, you've said like 15 big words and three semi-okay jokes that I maybe kind of laughed at and I'm awake so great. But how on earth is any of what you're saying going to provide any basis of hope for my neighbor? For me, when I read this scripture and have a question, how do I reason from anything but, well, you know, I mean, the Bible says it's inspired, so it's probably inspired. That sounds kind of crazy when you say that to your neighbor who's having a barbecue and they have a question about the Bible. How could that possibly be real? And you want to share the hope that you have. So Georgetown, I need you to just track with me here how Jesus with a snack can establish the authority of the scriptures because he quotes not only if you're in Matthew, he quotes not only from the law, but he quotes also from the prophets. And so Jesus is then saying, if you're looking, if you're remembering, I've said it three times, I know, in sermons in the last two months, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? We're going to get there. I promise there's pay dirt to stick with me. How on earth does that all apply to anything my neighbor needs to hear, anything they could possibly care about? What on earth is Jesus reasoning? Jesus agreeing that the law is inspired have to do with the way that my neighbor might have a question. And I want to answer it from the Bible because I believe it's true. So I said that the Pharisees were going to argue from what they believed as foundational truth, the authority of the students, the first five books of the Bible. What is it? Ah, that's right. So that's where Jesus meets them. And Jesus goes one better. Now, where does our culture establish a basis for truth? And it's almost a rhetorical question because we're hanging on by a thread even in the universities. But I would argue that it's not rhetorical yet. Post-modernity has not destroyed truth quite yet. I would maintain that in most universities, you can establish truth in a history class, and you could establish truth in a literature class. And so there's one place that our culture agrees there's truth, and then there's another place where it's kind of getting jacked around a little bit, and that is in the news. You have two witnesses. Usually you've got a story that the AP or Reuters will publish, or in the courts or the law. Now, don't forget Jesus. We're going to get there, I promise you. 
our culture will probably agree that something is true if you can like study it all the way to death and have peer-reviewed articles and doodly bops and all the hoodyah, like all of that is going to be true. Or two, two eyewitnesses, or in court you could be convicted for murder with one eyewitness. Those are places where truth still exists that your neighbor will agree with. Your neighbor will agree. And if they don't agree, then the county prosecutor will help them agree if, if they break the law. I assure you, they'll, they'll agree really quickly with our basis for truth. So let's then bring it all together. So if, and let's separate them. If we have, uh, let's, say, let's say eyewitness testimony, and let's say in the court of law, you need one to convict for murder. How many accounts do we have in our New Testament of Jesus' power over nature, power over sin, to forgive sin, power over death, saying, arise, Lazarus, come forth after three days, power over death in that he went to the cross, a torture instrument popularized by a nation that no historian could refute the cross existed, and that Pilate was a leader, and that Jesus was before him. So if there are one person that our culture, your neighbor, if they're arrested, the county prosecutor will convince them that it takes one to be convicted of murder. What if there were three who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' power through his whole ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then what if they what if they wrote down their account? And then what if they disseminated it to the churches? And what if they were willing to either maintain a lie, even unto death, or it was true because they all died for the story they say they believed? Now, what if it was just a news story? It takes two to publish that. And finally, what if we're in the realm of the university, and I will probably try to make it pretty brief. Because I think so far we've pretty well established that if it's your neighbor, they're going to believe the account of one in court and two in the news media. Now three in the university, where probably thought is, is working for the most part to establish some basis of reality, especially in the sciences where peer-reviewed articles are, they're the law. They're the real truth. So what if... In the study of linguistics, we said, or literature, maybe we could say, or even history, we'll just take two, literature and history. In history, there may be a question about whether the Hebrews traveled through the Red Sea. And so if your neighbor is wondering, I don't really know about that, they're questioning the historicity. They're questioning, is the thing you claim a true fact in history? If you have a written account, and that written account is called, let's say, the Iliad. Who's heard of the Iliad? A couple of us have heard of the Iliad anyway. So Homer writes the Iliad, and how many copies of the Iliad do you think that we have? Uh, no guesses. That's okay. So for, uh, that's our, I would not expect you to have cop copy guesses. What about Plato? Anybody want to guess how many copies we have of Plato's writings? Would you agree? You're going to guess. Say it. So, who, who is this? Abigail is winning right now. There are seven copies. Abigail, like you get a sucker. 
You have to see me after. There are this many copies of Plato. But our culture agrees that it's true, do we not? Agree that it's true? There was a Plato and he taught and Socrates followed him and Socratic method and the whole bit. So they would agree it's real and we have seven copies. How many then copies, full manuscripts of the New Testament do we have then? Does anybody want to guess? Because it's not seven. It's 5,600. So it's hundreds of times more than we have of Plato, which our culture agrees is true. So if we have by the testimony of three, if we have in a court of one an eyewitness, if we have in the university what we would consider truth or reality or factual history, if we have the three of those, then I would say to you that I think that when Jesus is quoting from a, in a Christian setting from a Jewish source, that it's really unlikely that people would die for and that it was ever possible for someone from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation to make one big giant fabricated piece of poo garbage. I would say to you that that's not possible and that your neighbor has a basis if you could communicate to them the truth that you can argue from their basis for reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see that when Jesus establishes from a snack the authority of Scripture. A man is laying in a hospital waiting to be the first person in history for a brain transplant. And unfortunately, the doctor comes in and says, Sir, I've got bad news. Your insurance is not going to cover all this because it's kind of a new procedure. So you've got some choices here. It's going to get expensive. But number one, first choice, for $100 an ounce, you can get engineer brain. Number two, for $200 an ounce, you can get astrophysicist brain. And number three, for $1,000, you can get politician brain. And the guy's like, what on earth are you talking about? Why is politician brain so expensive? He says it really takes a lot of politicians to get an ounce of brain matter. (laughs) Friends, I don't think that our neighbors are going to be astrophysicists who want to dissect into the level of detail that I got to today whether there is a basis for hope in the scriptures that we believe to be true. But if we can learn anything from Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, It's that it must be approached, as Peter says, with gentleness and with respect. We have to approach our neighbor with merciful hearts. So you have all the answers today. You can prove, prove that the scriptures are authoritative. And you can prove it like Jesus did with a snack. But if we don't have an answer for the hope that we have, delivered with mercy, gentleness, and respect, it won't matter how much we know. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity you give us to open your word, to understand your truth, and to be conformed to your image as you transform us by your Holy Spirit into people that reflect your image to a lost and hurting world. Father, it's our hope this morning that as a church we become people who are prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in you. But Father, that you would enable us to have loving hearts that approach this with gentleness, with mercifulness, and with respect. Father, would you shine your light 
through us each as we encounter a world that is hurting and hopeless. Father, would you do this to your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Friends, if you have a decision to make this morning, I invite you to join me down front, whether that's to become a follower of Christ for the first time or whether that's to ask a question about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I invite you to come this morning.